This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Between 1945 and 1950, Allied-occupied Germany became the temporary home for over a quarter of a million surviving Jews. In this waiting room of history, the world witnessed the most extraordinary renewal of Jewish life and culture. How do we understand the power and vitality of this rebirth, and what lessons might it hold for our lives today? This is the topic of a webinar hosted by the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center this coming Monday evening. Shirley Gilbert is Professor of Modern Jewish History at University College London, and she has a particular interest in the Holocaust and its legacies. She joins me more to tell me about this fascinating topic. Shirley, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Shirley, much of the Holocaust research has been on the camps itself. Yet it must have been so terrifying for people to leave the camps. And we kind of, there's a gap in terms of what happens next? Liberation happens. We celebrate liberation. What happens next? Yes, that's right. I think, you know, scholarship in the past 15 or 20 years has started really catching up and started starting to fill in this gap. But I think in the popular imagination, there's kind of this notion that there was liberation and that word has so many associations of of being an end of completion, of closure of some sort. And actually we know um, from all of the evidence that we've seen that for many people liberation was not that at all. It was a moment where, first of all, uh, many people I think found it hard to believe that in fact the troops that were arriving were going to liberate them after so many months and in many cases years of um, false hopes of uh, of extreme suffering. And many people didn't actually believe that what this was was their liberation. But also for many people, this was the moment at which um, they confronted the enormity of what had happened to them. Okay, so maybe um, the Nazis had fled, their camp was liberated by American soldiers, but they kind of found themselves without family, without a home, in the most extraordinary extraordinarily bad physical state without any prospect of a future or anything. So what does actually liberation mean? Um, so the first thing I will always do with my students is to say, well, let's look at this moment. What do we mean by the word liberation? And look at testimonies of of surviving Jews, particularly if we're, if we're um, focusing on the Holocaust, although there were there were many hundreds of thousands, millions of others who were liberated then too. Um, Let's look at this moment. Let's look at what these Jews are saying. And many of them say, well, what did I do at the moment of my liberation? I wept. Where was my family? Where was my, where were my parents? Where were my sisters and brothers? What am I going to do? You know, and, and for many people also, it was the beginning of a, a very long period of physical recovery, of gaining new skills, of figuring out actually what am I going to do with my life? And, and this, this period took a long time, as you read in the, the blurb for my talk, uh, the, the last DP camps in Germany closed in the 1950s. Many people were in these displaced persons camps for periods of months, even years. It wasn't, it wasn't a quick transition. And that was something that, that the, the liberating forces also didn't expect. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, people are free, but what does freedom actually mean when you're actually in a, in a camp? And I right. just wondered, what was the process of camps to displaced person camps and how long was that process? What actually happened? Uh, I'm not sure I totally get the question. What was the process? You mean how the did it? Concentration camps to displaced camps. Okay. So, I mean, what happened in 
the the liberation of the camps was a process that took several months. So the first camps were liberated from the east by Red Army Soviet troops that were coming in from the east. And those, you know, camps were already being liberated in the summer of 1944. Um, and this process continue, is continuing all the way through to the spring of 1945, also with um, uh, Western troops coming in from the West. Um, so you're not talking about an immediate process. There's camps, concentration camps, labor camps. And we know now, thanks to work done by the Holocaust, uh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and others, that there were tens of thousands of these establishments across uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, so those camps are liberated. And initially it was the allied military authorities that were responsible for dealing with the displaced persons. Um, and that was a process they imagined would be very quick. Their idea of dealing with the displaced persons was a job of, they imagined it would be a job of repatriation. In other words, uh, helping these people make their way back to their homelands. Now, just to give you a sense of the scale, we estimate that at this time there were somewhere between 8 and 11 million displaced persons literally roaming around Europe, I mean, with, with no fixed abode. Um, the vast majority of those displaced persons were not Jewish. These are people who had been working as um, forced laborers, as slave laborers um, for the Nazis um, of, of many different nationalities, of many different political affiliations, religions, and so on. And the vast majority of them were able to be repatriated by the Allied military authorities um, within the course of several months, the second half of 1945. The question of setting up more permanent facilities for them came about uh, largely because of the intervention of a man named Earl Harrison, who was sent to Europe um, to report on the conditions among displaced persons. And one of the... Um, most scathing criticisms that he made was about the treatment of Jews, many of whom, I would say most of whom, were not able to be repatriated. They may have tried to go back to Poland, uh, tried to go back to their homelands, but what they found there was, you know, either nothing, their families were not there, their homes had been taken over by somebody else, or they actually met with violence. We know that there were many pogroms in post-war Poland, um, most infamously the pogrom that took place in Kielce uh, in 1946, uh, so Jews were not repatriable in the same way that most of the other displaced persons were repatriable. And, and this was the reason for the establishment of um, specifically Jewish displaced persons camps, um, mostly in the, the Western Allied occupation zones of Germany. So that is the French, the British, and especially the American zone of occupied Germany. Uh, and some of the some of the places where Jews were put into camps had been concentration camps. So Bergen-Belsen, for example, um, in the British zone in northwest Germany, had been a concentration camp and was converted to a displaced persons camp. Um, and 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 this is how those specifically Jewish camps were established. Although previous to that, there were camps where um, displaced persons of many nationalities were were housed alongside Jews. What was life like in those displaced camps, and does it depend on which displaced camp you were at? Yes, I mean, always when we're talking about uh, what life was like uh, anywhere, really, you know, as a historian, my emphasis would always be on 
the the specificity of local conditions. Um, at the same time, we're talking very broadly, so with that with that caveat in mind. Um, and I'm going to talk specifically about the Jewish displaced persons camps here, although, as I said, um, previous to that, Jews were housed alongside others, and that was much more difficult. Um, once Jews were able to be in their in their own camps and organize themselves, um, life took on a, a very different look. Uh, so the first thing just to emphasize is that there was, there were attempts at formal organization, successful attempts at formal organization. So the, this group of displaced Jews, of displaced um, persons, called themselves She'erit Hapleta, the surviving remnant. Um, and they organized themselves politically into a group and local groups in the various local DP camps that could represent themselves to the allied military authorities, uh, to humanitarian groups that were working with them. Um, and they did so very successfully. Um, initially, as I said, it was the allied military authorities that were working with them. That was a difficult relationship because those military authorities were not prepared for what they found and they were not trained to work with people who had experienced the kind of suffering and deprivation and torture that um, Jewish victims of the Nazis had experienced. Um, but once you could get international organizations in, like the joint, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, like ORT, the Organization for Rehabilitation Through Training, um, and other organizations, life also became better. So the specific needs of Jewish survivors could be met um, from physical needs, and this is something that the joint particularly was good at, you know, food, clothing, adequate shelter, and so on, to meeting more spiritual needs, religious needs. Um, so we know that there was a fully functioning press in many displaced persons camps, you know, newspapers that were created and distributed, um, education set up, both for children, also vocational training um, for adults to enable them to acquire new skills and that then would perhaps give them a, a foothold into, into um, gainful employment afterwards. Um, leisure, recreational activities, things like theater, music, um, uh, cultural life, so enabling that kind of uh, side of existence to flourish. Um, so, you know, I think these places, when we talk about renewal in the shadow of the Holocaust, I think one, one of the things about, about these places that is so striking alongside the recovery, uh, the, you know, the recovery from terrible suffering, physical ordeals and so on, is just being able to see the revival of um, a cultural life, of social life, of Jewish religious life. Um, and of course, the biggest aspect of that renewal that's often spoken about is the baby boom. Um, the the birth rate in these displaced persons camps is one of the highest that's ever been recorded in human history. Uh, we know that there were m multiple weddings, often mass weddings, you know, of couples getting married alongside one another together, um, and and lots of birth of babies. So we have lots and lots of photographs from the time of young mothers, especially. Uh, walking with their babies in prams, and, and there's something very iconic that was rec 
uh, at the time too about the, the literal renewal of Jewish life after it had been so very nearly extinguished during the Holocaust. Shelley, you speak about renewal in, in, in such positive terms, but we know that that um, process of recovery was going to take another 20 years possibly before people could talk about the Holocaust and what happened. Do you see this displacement camp as a unique kind of part of Jewish history? Um, so it's a complicated question. Um, was it a unique part of Jewish history? I think, yes, it is in a kind of an extraordinary moment in limbo, this, this amazing in-between moment. Um, but you're absolutely right to point out that it is not, you know, kind of unalloyed, uh, good. <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, one of the things that I have, um, emphasized a lot in my writing about the Holocaust and the post-war period is that we need to be very careful not to um, frame it in terms of these redemptive narratives of, isn't it so wonderful after everything that they suffered, the Jews were able to do this. I think we need, we always need to have that backdrop of um, what they had endured and what they were recovering from. So, you know, to look at this interim moment, I think is, fascinating from the perspective of seeing how people come to terms with and work through and make their way through um, such an unprecedented and such a an extreme period of suffering so that when we look at the revival of theater, the revival of music, the creation of a press, the birth of babies. We don't look at it in these very shallow, superficial, triumphalist terms, but try and really understand what did it mean for people to have babies. And, you know, you have people talking about this in, in very uh, emotional terms that, you know, to have babies was to defy what the Nazis had tried to do. It's something that's coming from a very deep painful place so you know it means that that past is not it's not just um leaving the past behind and looking towards a beautiful sunny future but really trying to trying to confront and come to terms with that past through these actions that affirm identity that affirm the notion we are here that's uh, we are here in Yiddish that was a kind of catchphrase of the time but we always need to think about that phrase um, in terms of the context that created it the the pain and the suffering that it grew out of rather than just thinking about it in, in triumphalist terms Surely it is an absolutely fascinating topic. Um, I know that you're, you're, um, you will be talking this coming Monday, the 10th of August at 7 p.m. and the topic is displaced, renewal in the shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, there are so many different dimensions to, to talk about, but I will leave that for those who of you, or you who join the webinar that is being hosted by the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. And that's this, this coming Monday and RSVP, RSVP is absolutely essential. Um, please be in touch with the Holocaust Center if you'd like to join. Shirley, absolutely fascinating topic. Um, I know you're a regular uh, speaker at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, so I look forward to your next talk, and we can maybe talk more about music and the other aspects of the Holocaust that people know so little about that is so absolutely important. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thank you. That was Dr. Shirley Gilbert, Professor of Modern Jewish History at University College London.